Father, here now in our hearts, we fall down and we ask you by the power of your Holy Spirit, touch our hearts. Amen. I suspect, although I can't know for certain, I suspect that those who knew Mary and Joseph personally back then, I suspect for them the birth of Jesus would have been a deeply ordinary event. No, O night divine. And certainly not the enduring story that has become. Now, certainly there were some strange things that took place. For sure, angels, for example, words of God and whatnot. But still, it was small, it was local, and it involved nobodies. And birth, of course, happens to nobodies every day. It becomes, of course, terrifyingly political within a couple of years with Herod and I can't say what he did to the infants. But still not really newsworthy. And yet the story has endured. It has overwhelmingly endured. And the evidence is before you today. Here we are singing about it. So why? Why is it overwhelmingly enduring? What is it about the story that has made it stick? And it can't just be because it's an underdog story. An underdog story works, I think, as an appeal to modern Westerns and Australians in particular, but not to a person living in a Greco-Werman world. I watched the movie Gladiator over the last couple of nights. That's what I do these days, I watch movies over a couple of nights, like you. I watched the movie The Gladiator where the underdog wins and as I'm watching it, I think this is a profoundly Christian idea. But it is an underdog story, that's for sure. Joseph, for example, is of the line of King David, but such ancestry is virtually meaningless by the birth of Jesus. He is a carpenter. Mary, most likely, is a teenage girl, and as much as I think teenagers are awesome, and I do, she is a nobody when the angel shows up to her. The shepherds are unnamed. The family member who owns the property where Jesus was born, they don't even have room for this couple. And so Jesus is born sort of out the back and down the stairs and placed, we are told, simply in a manger, in a feeding trough. And Bethlehem is a backwater in Judah and Israel is a backwater in the Roman Empire. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. You'll have to come on Christmas Eve to sing that one. All of this irrelevant to someone who thinks politics is key. All of it irrelevant if you think business is key. All of it irrelevant if you think that big news stories are the only news stories. And all of it irrelevant to most Australians today, except maybe at Christmas time. But there's something happening here. Something is happening here that is divine and world-changing and life-changing. And we're here this afternoon to work out why 
We're calling this Advent and Christmas season here at Church Hill a crescendo of hope. Now, I love a good TED talk. TED, as you might know, is devoted to spreading ideas in the form of short, powerful talks called TED Talks. I love the whole belief and possibility that ideas can change the world. I want you to think of the next 12 minutes as a Christmas TED Talk, a chance to rethink Christmas with the possibility of a life change as a result. Now, I can't say if this talk will be powerful or life-changing. I'll do my best to keep it clear and short-ish. <laughs> but life-changing is not up to me. Because one of the enduring truths about Christianity, and it's embedded into the Gospels, is this. It yields its joys only to those who want it. Only the thirsty get to drink. Only the hungry get to eat. Which is strange because most people think they've got the message cornered. And at the same time, the message is loud and clear. It's not hard to find. It has been proclaimed from rooftops and mountains for millennia. And the message goes something like this. There is one true God who was and is and is to come. And that God, the one true God, has made himself known in the life of Jesus. Jesus, then, is the door to God. And he has provided a redemption that everyone needs through the forgiveness of sins wrought by the death of Jesus for me, ahead of the renewal of the world wrought by the resurrection of Jesus this is, as the carol says, the dawn of redeeming grace. Christ did the work, I gain the blessings, God gets the glory. Go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born. That's it, that's the message. But here it is, not everyone hears it. Jesus famously said, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. In other words, just because you have ears, doesn't mean you'll hear. Not everyone in the room will hear, even if all have ears. And just because you have eyes doesn't mean you'll see. Jesus also said, same theme, to God, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Kids get what adults sometimes don't get. Those who want get it, those who don't miss out. And I wonder if it has something to do with hardness or cynicism. It would seem that God has to reveal it to you. Another remark by Jesus, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found the treasure, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all that he had. It was worth it to sell all that he had, and he bought the field. Now, what does all this mean? It means that some in this room will get it, and many won't. You'll hear the carols, you might see the caring community, 
but that's all. And it's not because it's a um, Gnostic thing where only the enlightened get it, and not because it's complicated where only the intelligent get it. I don't believe that for one moment. It's got to do with desire. It's got to do with thirst. It's got to do with need and longing. And that thirst, need, that longing has to get past all the pride, the basic drive we all have to defend our position and not give in. I wonder why this is why adults resist. So how would one get past this? I'll come back to that right at the very end. What do you need to know this, this afternoon? Well, you need to know this. The one who is big was, for a time, made small so that we who are small are made big. There it is, I'll say it again. The one who, who is big was made small so that we who are small are made big. 16th century poet John Donne on the whole concept of God in a womb. In his poem he writes, thou hast light in dark and shuttest in little room. Immensity cloistered, Mary, in thy dear womb. Immensity in thy dear womb. Or classically, Narnia, yes, said Queen Lucy, in our world too, a stable once had something inside of it that was bigger than our whole world. Our church has been looking at Isaiah 40 during Advent, read beautifully over the recording from Joe Hatcher, Joe Nicholson, let me get that right, who lends her voice to the ABC and we get her from time to time. We've been looking at Isaiah 40, this ancient, profound, prophetic word during Advent. Isaiah 40 is like a symphony of the promises of God, you heard it a moment ago, rising to a crescendo of hope in the birth of Jesus. And it starts with comfort being offered to exiled Israel, for God has dealt with their, her sin. And how does that comfort come? It happens when God shows up on a highway. It's a metaphor, of course, a highway cut for our God and the glory of the Lord being revealed. How will you know when that moment has happened? Well, you'll hear a voice, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. We know this voice as John the Baptist, preparing the way for God, and his name is Jesus Christ. And what will you find out about this God? This God has two arms. You might like to look at me for this moment. Two arms, one with power and the other with tenderness, because the prophet says, Behold your God, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, he rules with a mighty arm, and same God, that God tends his flock like a shepherd, he gathers the lambs in his arms, he carries them close to his heart. Big and tender. This is the Christmas story, behold your God. But you may not believe this, you might struggle to believe this. Maybe you aren't sure. Maybe you're like Israel in exile, 
who said this. Maybe you can see your own heart in these words. The prophet says, why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. God doesn't notice, you might say, or he doesn't care, you might feel. I've been abandoned. Maybe this year has been a hard year. Something ancient Israel felt clearly. The late great physicist Stephen Hawking was said to have said, we are such insignificant creatures, small, right? We are such insignificant creatures on a minor planet among more than 100,000 million galaxies. So it is difficult to believe in a God that would care about us or even notice our existence. Hawking assumes there that a big God only notices big things, but how would he know that? The gospel of Jesus Christ tells you that he does notice you, that your way is not disregarded by God. It is not hidden from the Lord. But he is big, I tell you. Isaiah goes on in verse 21, don't you know, haven't you heard? Has it not been told you from the very beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? Don't you get it? Verse 22, God sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. And its people are like grasshoppers in size. And he stretches out the heavens like a canopy. And he spreads them out like a tent to live on. Now, all ancient cosmology for sure. But the point is, he is immensity. True in respect of the universe. Verse 12, who has measured the waters at the oceans in the hollow of his hand? Or with the breadth of his hand has marked out the heavens? Now, we know even more with modern science. No one has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. No one except for God, the breadth of his hand has marked off the heavens. True in respect of knowledge, verse 14. Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Who is it that taught him knowledge and showed him the path of understanding? No one. True in respect of nations, Verse 15, surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust in the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. And true in respect of despots, you'll be pleased to know. Verse 23, he brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of the world to nothing. He's that big, so he's, a, he's across it all. And yet the promise embedded in Isaiah is that your way is not hidden from the Lord. Your cause not disregarded by God, but indeed your God will come. The birth of Jesus is your God has come. Immensity cloistered in thy dear womb. And yet, and this is key, he comes in weakness. He comes in frailty. He comes in human flesh. He comes as a baby. He comes and grows up ordinary, and he lives the life I should have lived and I, did, I haven't lived it. He dies the death that I deserve and I deserve it. And I believe this with all my heart, that God raised Jesus to life again in order to redeem the world 
and indeed to fill heaven and earth. And in this story, God identifies with the slave in order to redeem slaves everywhere. Emperor Julian, Rome's last pagan emperor, was reputed to have said on his deathbed, maybe, thou hast conquered, O pal Galilean, you win. What does all this mean? It means the one who was big was made small so that we who are small are made big, so that those who trust God, weak as we are, can be lifted up, forgiven, restored, noticed, and remembered, indeed, given eternal life. C.S. Lewis said of the incarnation, the central miracle asserted by Christians is the incarnation. They say that God became man. Every other miracle prepares for this or exhibits this or results from this. For example, his death and resurrection. In the Christian story, God descends in order to reascend. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into eternity, down into the very roots of the nature he has created. But here it is, he goes down to come up again and bring the whole ruined world with him. And so only some get it. And even less of them reorientate their lives as a result. But this all comes because one has to set aside the pride. If God has made himself known this way, if there is a God which is not a stretch given existence, and if Jesus is the door to God, then walk through that door, we must. We must enter giving up the pride and the self-defense. This is how the dear Christ enters in. My father became a follower of Jesus later. Perhaps when I was a young person, I'm very thankful he did. But he became a Christian because of these words of Jesus. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened. For everyone who asks, receives. Those who seek, will find. And those who knock, the door will be opened. Let me pray. Father, we now here ask for forgiveness. We seek Jesus Christ, and we believe the door to eternal life will be opened. Take away the pride and lift us up through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.